Along the path of discipleship, there comes a hard turn. In the Gospels, you really can't miss it. Jesus and his disciples have been going along their way, healing people, feeding multitudes, and agitating the religious establishment with their radical new ways. The disciples are feeling good, they're feeling free in the presence and the power of Jesus, their teacher. But then things take a turn. In Mark, this turning point comes in chapter 8. In Luke, it's chapter 9. And in Matthew, it's chapter 16. Here's what happens. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they have all kinds of answers for him. They say, you were John the Baptist, back from the dead. They say you were Elijah or, or another prophet. Apparently, the jury was still out on Jesus, at least out in the community. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, What about you? Who do you say that I am? And his disciple Peter, in that moment, he has the insight and the courage to say what amounts to the first Christian confession of faith. He says, Jesus you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And just like that, the truth was out. But then things took a turn. Jesus started to talk funny. He started to talk about things that he had never mentioned before. Matthew says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Jesus' friends to hear that and to hear it for the first time? It was horrifying. It had to be wrong. Peter even confronted Jesus about it, only to be told in one of the harshest exchanges in Scripture to get out of Jesus' way. I can only imagine the silence that must have fallen over the disciples then. Our Scripture reading this morning breaks that silence. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. The beliefs I hold are sometimes at a great distance from the words I say or the actions I take. I believe in taking care of my health. 
But my Fitbit will tell you that I have not gotten my 10,000 daily steps in over a week, and maybe since Feed My Starving Children. (laughs) I believe in keeping up my friendships, but then I will go for months and even years without a phone call or text. I believe deeply in democracy, but I only show up to my polling place at the end of the day with mere minutes to cast my vote if last week is any indication. There is a discrepancy between how I want to be and how I am. Speaking with his disciples, Jesus calls out a similar discrepancy. When it comes to following him, there is a difference between wanting to follow and actually following. For Peter and for the disciples and for all of us, there is a difference between knowing and saying that Jesus is the Messiah and actually acting as if it's true. Between professing faith and practicing it, there is a difference. And that difference is made up of two things, namely, denying yourself and taking up your cross. Now, neither one of these things, self-denial or cross-carrying, is particularly appealing on the face of it. Like Peter, we may be winding up to argue back. We may also feel resistant because of the ways this particular teaching of Jesus has been misinterpreted and misused in the past, maybe even in our own personal experience. I am wary of this text. Christians have done all kinds of unusual and even unhealthy things in the name of self-denial. In the early church, this took the form of extreme asceticism, like some Christians were known to chain themselves to rocks, or to stand up straight for days until they fainted, or to eat grass only, or to fast for months at a time. We are likely to see these practices as dangerous and as foreign to the faith that we know. But we may be just as prone to destructive self-denial, to disordered eating, to overexertion, to workaholism and stress addiction that rob us of comfort and rest, these are forms of self-denial taken to an extreme. And so when Jesus brings up self-denial, I'm nervous. And it gets worse with take up your cross. Throughout Christian history, people being abused or mistreated have been told to suffer through it with the words, it's just your cross to bear. Those words have justified all kinds of unjust circumstances where people actually had the power to make change. So I want to be careful with this teaching. I want to ask, what does it really mean? What does it really mean? to deny yourself. This verb to deny is a strong one in the original Greek. It's a hard, loud no. To say no, to deny yourself is to refuse yourself, even to disown yourself. In the words of one scholar, this self-denial is a conscious decision, a contradiction against one's own vital interests in turning to Christ. And I think that's important, that last part, because 
this know that I might say to myself, it's not self-destructive. It's life-giving because at the same time, I am saying yes to Jesus Christ. God made each one of us to be who we are. It is good for you to be you. It is good for me to be me. We are never called to cancel ourselves out. I will always be me. But I cannot only be about me. This life that you and I are living, it is not our own. And part of being a disciple is knowing that. And then there is the matter of taking up your cross. Let's get to it. To understand this, I think we have to remember what the cross meant in the ancient world. We have to imagine what it would have signified to Jesus' disciples before Good Friday, before Easter. Nobody in ancient Palestine was wearing a cross around their neck. Nobody was putting it on banners or, or setting it in beautiful stained glass. Nobody was doing that. It was an instrument of torture and execution only. It meant fear only. It meant death only. It is difficult for us as Christians to divest the cross of the gracious and hopeful meaning that it has for us now, but to understand what Jesus meant when he said this to his disciples, take up your cross I think we have to try to get into their mindset. Maybe taking up your cross means getting a hold on what it is that you most fear. To acknowledge what we fear, to hold it in our hands. Whatever it is. Maybe it's the fear that you aren't good enough. Maybe it's the fear that you will never be loved. Maybe it's the fear that God is absent or the plain old fear of suffering and dying. Whatever it is, whatever that fear is, Jesus is telling us to get a hold of it, to set our sights on him and to follow where he leads. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus has told us what to expect on this journey of faith. But what does that look like in our daily lives? Especially in this season of Lent as we are focused on spiritual practices, I wonder what we are called to do about this teaching. I wonder what we can do to live our faith out. This week I had the joy of talking on the phone with one of my closest friends. She lives in New York City. We hadn't talked in a while, so we traded updates about our lives, our jobs, our families. And then we talked about current events. And so you know that we talked about the coronavirus, COVID-19. And by this point, several people in New York had tested positive for the virus. And my friend was feeling a bit anxious, she said. And I asked her to tell me more about that. And she surprised me because she said that what scared her most was not getting sick. What scared her most was how people were going to treat each other as the disease spread. She was worried that people would be unkind, suspicious of each other. I have to tell you, I had not been thinking about that. I am now. No one knows what will happen. There seems to be so much uncertainty, and there are going to be things, no matter what, that we cannot control. 
in this situation, in many situations of our lives. But what we can do and what we must do is to seek to act in a way that reflects Jesus Christ. And a lot of what we are seeing with this virus is not exactly that. I don't know about you, but I'm not really denying myself right now. I'm in survival mode. I was at HEB this week. I was clearing the shelves of toilet paper and water and shelf-stable foods with the rest of you. And I don't have a full handle on my fear. There have been moments when it's more like fear has a hold on me. I don't have a hold on it. And I've had to wonder in all of this if I'm really letting God lead. I've been turning to a lot of authorities I've been talking to doctors. I've been listening to journalists who've covered dozens of epidemics. I've been talking to other pastors around the country who are newly perplexed by the passing of the peace. (laughs) But you know what? I have been slower to seek the wisdom and the will of God. I know that I'm not alone in this. Still, I am convinced that there is another way. I heard a story in the news this week about a woman in Seattle named Bridget. And Bridget's mother is living in a nursing facility where several residents have now been diagnosed with coronavirus. And for safety's sake, all the residents are being kept apart. They are isolated to their rooms. A nurse or a tech might come in to see Bridget's mom every few hours to take her temperature or to bring her a meal. But otherwise, she is alone. Her family can call her, but they are not allowed to see her. And recently, that got to be too much. The facility was under lockdown, but Bridget decided that she just had to see her mom. And so she put together a care package, and she showed up at the front door. She rang the bell and waited for someone to come. And while she was waiting, she saw on the door a sign that said, No admittance. But she was not deterred. And when a nurse came out and started to take the package from her, Bridget said, wait, wait a minute. I know I can't go in. But is there any way I can go around outside to her window and just see her? Can I just wave at her so she knows that I'm here? And the nurse said, yes, of course. And as Bridget made her way along the outside wall to her mother's window, that nurse was making her way down the hallway to her mother's room. And she gave her the package. And she opened the blinds. And Bridget waved at her mom. Maybe actions like these will seem too simple or too small to matter much. This weekend during the presbytery meeting that was held in our building, I heard the Reverend Denise Anderson speak about something called the heresy of niceness. As we strive to live out our faith in the real world, it is not enough for us as Christians just to be nice. There are some gaps that random acts of kindness cannot fill. Gaps in our healthcare system, in education, in our legal system, in our economic system. I cannot say to you this morning that care packages and friendly waves are going to solve all the world's problems. But I do believe I do believe that if we choose love over fear in the little things, in our daily practice of faith, we will be conditioned, we will be made strong to work for justice courageously when God calls us to do so.
And all of that together, from the little things to the big things, that is the spiritual practice of service. And it's a practice to which we are all called. Because it's Confirmation Sunday, I've been thinking a lot about the faith of young people, young heroes of the faith. And I want to tell you a story about a man named Jonathan Daniels. He was a white man. He was born in New Hampshire in 1939. And growing up, Jonathan really did not know what he wanted to do with his life. He thought about law. He thought about medicine. And eventually, he settled on ministry. And when he was a student in seminary, he saw the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on television imploring people to come to Selma, Alabama to join in the fight for all citizens, including black citizens, to have the right to vote. And Jonathan went to Selma. Eventually, he was jailed there for taking part in a protest against whites-only stores. He was in jail a week, and then without warning... Jonathan and his compatriots were released. And they didn't know where to go. They didn't have a ride. They were just put out onto the street. And they realized that that actually put them in danger. And so they went to find a store where they could maybe grab a drink and make a phone call for someone to pick them up. They headed that way. But as 16-year-old Ruby Sales reached the front door, a man with a shotgun stepped out. To block her way. He cursed Ruby and he pointed that gun right at her. And that's when Jonathan Daniels pulled Ruby aside. That's how he died. Taking a shotgun blast meant for Ruby, his fellow activist, a teenager who just happened to be black. He died. But she lived and she continues the work of justice to this day. Not many of us will be called to give our lives for God or for others so directly, but all of us are called to give our lives to Christ in other ways. All of us are called to serve. Jesus makes it plain. Those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. When we choose to look only to our own interests, we may feel at first that we are winning. We're getting the most out of life. The attraction of self-interest is so strong, but it, it is ultimately empty. And when we pursue it, we miss out on the greater, more heroic, more courageous, more loving story that God is trying to tell through our lives. It is only in giving ourselves over to Christ that we discover a road that is worth traveling, a life worth living a life defined by humble, loving service to others, no matter the inconvenience and no matter the risk. In this holy season of Lent and all along this journey of faith, no matter where you are on it, I invite you to hear Christ's invitation to serve, and I invite you to say yes. If we do, we may yet catch a glimpse of God's glory revealed in one another, here and now. There are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. May God's love be reflected in all we say and do. Amen.